Hey, this is Rob Harder with Making Your World Better, a nonprofit leadership show where real stories from real people who are coming up with real solutions to solve society's biggest challenges. What does it take to be an effective nonprofit leader today? How do people fundraise in an economy that is constantly in flux? How do you relate to board members in a way that inspires them to make a difference? What are the best practices that separate effective nonprofits from others? It is my hope that through these episodes, people can learn not only what it takes to be an effective nonprofit organization, but to hear real stories from real leaders who are successfully making a positive impact in their communities. We hope you enjoy this series as together we hear how they're making their world better. What is the future of education? And is there a new skill set that students should be learning today to be successful? And specifically with the nonprofit sector, is there a different set of leadership skills that universities ought to be teaching and training today? This and more will be covered by my guest today. He is Dr. Craig Detweiler, president of the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology, an innovative and progressive school offering a holistic approach to education. Now, Dr. Detweiler, thanks so much for calling in. First of all, from Seattle, we're glad to have you on the show today. Talk a bit about how you were drawn and why you accepted your current position as president of the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology, and what moved you from Pepperdine to take this role? Well, I was really impressed by just the beauty of the work that they were doing. You know, in in the world of of nonprofits, uh, everybody's trying to make a difference, trying to make a positive impact. Um, At the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology was started by therapists. It was started by counselors who uh, wanted to uh, bring health and and healing to a broader audience, to equip a new generation uh, to care for others, and uh, and to do that out of a a theological base that really dignified uh, people and, and, and treated them with great care and compassion. And the deeper I dove, really from the website in, um, it, it just it just seemed more beautiful, uh, more compelling at a, war, at a time when the world is, you know, increasingly divided and polarized. Um, here was an organization that I think we can all agree that we need, you know, much more hope and, and healing, um, particularly in areas that are tough, areas of trauma, areas of abuse. Uh, Areas of, uh, you know, ongoing deep-rooted racial tension. You know, how, how do you, how do you wade into these kind of messy zones where people, you know, have, have really powerful and painful experiences? So how do you tease that out and, and offer, uh, you know, alternative kind of a third way of moving forward? Um, that, that's what drew me to the Seattle School. You have a very interesting model for your school. It goes like this, forming provocators of change at the intersection of text, soul, and culture. Love this emphasis, and it's very unique. What does this look like, and how does it inform how you teach and train your students? Well, uh, my background as a filmmaker may not seem like a natural fit, you know, into uh, graduate education, theological education. But our school, the Seattle School, essentially is, is rooted in story. And so when we, when we say text, we're talking about the text of life, the text of, of individual lives, of family systems, and we're also talking about the text of, of the Bible and the Scripture. And so how does you know, God's story fit in with our story, and how do we locate ourselves within that? 
the soul piece really is is that inner work, that work of, of formation, character formation, and and integration. You know, getting aligned with who we are and whose we are, and then culture is 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 how we live it out. It's it's the social implications of um, you know what it means to uh, love your neighbor, what it means to um, care for those who may not look like you uh, or have your sh- same background. And so, so it's how we bring this ancient text into our text of life, how it uh, is rooted in our soul and hopefully transforms who we are, and then how we carry that out into the marketplace of ideas and make a positive impact in the world. What are the real-world implications of this inner work that our students are doing? Very interesting, and it's obvious that you have a lot of uniqueness built into this school. What would you say the top three factors are that make your school unique? Uh, well, we are very committed to this notion of formation. We want people's lives to be changed for the better. So they may come in with uh, anger, uh, pain, frustration, uh, you know, issues of, of abuse, things that just are not right with how they were raised or how they've been treated. Um, but we believe in the power of transformation. And so out of this, this character formation, um, we, we encourage, I would say the second thing is integration so that our, our, our mind, our body, our soul become aligned and we're not fighting against ourselves. We're not, um, at war, you know, having an internal war, which is, you know, easy, easy to get into where we're doubting ourselves or we're acting out of anger. We're not tapping into, you know, our best inclinations. Uh, and then I think the third piece is sustainability. Uh, you know, in the nonprofit world, if you're going to be uh, a caregiver, if you're going to be someone who's uh, doing any kind of relief work, compassion work, uh, working with the public, serving uh, communities, it's easy to get burned out. And and even though you aspire to do good things, it's it's very hard to go the distance. And so sustainability, I think, is also one of our, our, our real distinctives where um, we, we want to teach, teach people how to take good care of themselves as they care with others uh, to make sure that uh, we're not – serving out of kind of an empty well, you know, that that we can pour ourselves out in serving others and and not fill ourselves, fill our own cups enough to, to, to go the distance, you know, like, like there's a long, very long road. And uh, obviously the service, professional service, nonprofit work um, can be taxing, can be really, really draining. And so we're trying to build healthy habits and practices into people's lives so they can engage in their own soul care as well as the, the care for others. Well, Craig, as you mentioned earlier, you are a filmmaker. Uh, you have taken your students to Sundance, in fact, every year. It's been great having you here in Park City for that. You've also taught film students at Pepperdine. Now you're in a new role as president. How have you sought to integrate your experience as a filmmaker and working with film students into your current role? Yes, well, you know, I, I believe... Creativity, in many ways, is on the rise. What we what we are longing for, I think, as a culture, is creative solutions to problem solving, and to some degree, the the filmmaking task, particularly, uh, you know, say in documentary and nonfiction, 
you're you're constantly in a sense showing up, seeing what the conditions are, reading reading the the culture, what's in front of you, what you've been handed, and then figuring out how to respond, how to best uh, how to best dignify your subjects and how to capture uh, their story, not in a in a possessive way, right, but in a a positive and respectful way. And so, uh, you know, as a nonfiction filmmaker, in a sense, your clients, you're serving the story and you're serving the people in the story. And I don't think that's different than, you know, nonprofit work. I don't think it's that different from counseling, from, you know, serving in a pastor, being a a social entrepreneur, serving a neighborhood. You're you're still going to try to read the text of the neighborhood. You're going to try to understand the culture that you're seeking to enter into, and uh, and you're going to bring hopefully a certain level of soulfulness to the task that uh, you know transforms the situation and maybe leaves a little bit better than than when you entered in to uh, you know into into the situation. So I, I would say, yeah, what I'm trying to bring is creative problem solving that has room for improv. That has room, you know. You have a plan, but you're also open to, you know, maybe pointing the camera or taking the story in a different way as you're dealing with people who are constantly changing, constantly evolving, difficult to predict, you know, what will happen. And so you have to be open as a leader. I think uh, maybe you begin with a plan, but you're open to open to improvising. Well, this is a nonprofit leadership podcast, of course, and as such, uh, since you not only lead a nonprofit, but one of your primary jobs in your role as president is to inspire, to equip, and to lead a large contingent of future leaders of whom, my guess would be, many will go into the nonprofit sector, whether it be faith-based or not. So in your opinion, what are the three key things that you hope everyone who leaves your school integrates into their work-life nonprofit service after graduation? I would say that that notion of um, having a certain level of professionalism that allows us to treat others uh, with dignity, with respect, to value who they are as as people, uh, and then also doing that for ourselves. You know, to to realize that um, we we can't uh, you know we we, we can't give away what we don't own ourselves. And so if we don't have peace of mind, if we don't have personal health, if we don't have sustainable uh, practices in our own life for uh, to allow us to maintain peace of mind, to maintain a healthy work-life balance, then we'll get out of balance very quickly because the demands are huge. Uh, and then also this issue of sustainability. I mean, I've talked some about personal health, uh, but I think there's also, you know, financial health and uh, how do you manage a business or or how do you raise money? How do you find supporters? How do you build a network that uh, will allow you to keep doing what you're doing over the long haul? Um, you know, it, the chasing, uh, chasing support, I think, can be an exhausting thing uh, for leaders, particularly if they haven't been trained and aren't. Um, aren't comfortable with that. So I hope we're teaching, in a sense, all of our students to be uh, entrepreneurial in what they do. I think that old version of maybe sticking with one company or, or uh, 
one nonprofit for the long haul. It's, that's increasingly not the case. You know, people change from job to job, and and jobs change, and companies change, uh, NGOs change. So that ability to shift with the times is also, I think, a really important uh, skill for 21st century graduates. No, it's really interesting. You mentioned the fact that it's true. Uh, many of your students have already changed jobs frequently. In fact, there was a study done not long ago by LinkedIn that pointed out for millennials, most of them will have four separate jobs within the first 10 years out of college. Most average four different jobs before the age of 32. So I just was curious, are you seeing this and these same trends with leaders in faith communities and nonprofits, both from your experience at Pepperdine and your position now? Yeah, it's interesting. I think people, uh, there's a lot that's being written on, like, how do you manage millennials? Can you manage millennials? Uh, you know, there's there's a lot of, um, I don't know, anxiety around a generation that maybe isn't motivated in the same ways. Um, they may not be as motivated by money. They're, they're more motivated by meaning. They're looking for meaningful work. Um, they're looking for flexible work. They maybe don't want their job to possess their life in a in, in an overwhelming way, and so they're navigating the workplace at the same time we're trying to uh, you know mentor them and lead them into maturity. So it is a bit of a a, a dance that I think is is just uh, is just starting. People are just kind of getting their head around it. Um, I, I guess I've been impressed by millennials' commitment to social justice, to equality, to uh, you know being fair, equitable. Um, I think they're a very refreshing uh, generation in that way. Uh, very hope-filled, maybe more so than uh, you know than some might have guessed, right? Uh, people who've been raised in in a Post 9/11 context, they've they've seen a lot that is traumatic. Uh, they've they've struggled, I think. To um, it's a hard one. Hope it's not a uh, been an easy thing. They've lived, they've lived through economic downturns and hit the job market at a moment when nobody was hiring, uh, and then also experiencing you know technological booms uh, when everybody's hiring. So I can see how they've changed because the world has changed every few years. So uh, jobs they may have loved, they may have been laid off from. Uh, companies they were excited about may have gone away. Uh, so, of course, they have, I think, learned to be uh, adaptable. And uh, it could be that as, as leaders, we have to learn how to adapt to them and to their, uh, I don't know, shifting interests, shifting focus. Uh, I think they're very open to being mentored. I think the millennial generation is looking for leadership and maybe hasn't seen a lot of admirable leadership in, in front of them. When you think about the amount of scandals that they've had to watch and um, improprieties that they've seen here and there, uh, I think they want good leadership and, and will respond when they find uh, mentors that they can really trust. Hey, everybody, Rob here. Thanks so much for listening to the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast. My hope is that you continue to find these podcasts interesting and uh, you're introduced to great leaders. You're introduced to fantastic nonprofit organizations. And my hope is today is no different. Now, back to the show. 
Well, thanks again for that. And, and from your experience in training, what are the most important leadership traits nonprofit leaders need to cultivate in order to lead today's nonprofit organizations? In other words, have you seen any major changes in these key leadership traits in the last 20 years or so, or have they remained the same? Um, well, you know, an example of this might be, um, you know, the evolution of fundraising. The, you know, in an earlier era, it was all about, you know, mailing lists and, uh, you know, sending out letters and fundraising letters. Um, I'm not sure how many people respond to the mail. I'm not sure how many people respond to letters, particularly uh, young people who whose addresses might be, you know, changing all the time. It's actually hard to find them via their addresses. Um, Of course, phones at one point, right? Phone calls would have been a very important way to reach out to people. Uh, I I still think the phone is a powerful tool, but more people respond to text messages than they do to email or to phone calls, I think. Um, There's a certain immediacy in that, and that's a a big shift. So I think the the part that leaders might be struggling is is how to – how to be an agile um, organization and and how to shift at a speed that is commensurate with which the speed that technology is shifting all of us. Um, you know, I, I, the, the percentages of, of people who, who would give online, who would rather click a button, I think have, have probably risen, you know, exponentially. Um, well, is your organization built? For that, and and how do you? What kind of relationship do you have to that kind of donor? It's a different kind of donor, perhaps. Uh, so, yeah, the, the nonprofit leadership to me needs to understand the uh, analytics, needs to understand how to read broad trends. How are people using your website? How long are they staying? What are they looking at? Um, what kind of public engagement do you have? How quickly do you respond to the marketplace? How quickly can you respond to national crises? Um, you know, things that explode on Twitter overnight. It, it, you may need to be able to craft a, a very thoughtful response to a very provocative issue. And that's not training that people necessarily receive. Um, so the, the need for some savvy uh, PR, some uh, thought leadership that is rooted in the moment. Um, you know, th- that tendency to sort of sit back and wait and say, I'm not sure. Well, we don't know what's going to happen with this issue. Well, in some cases, the issues <laughs> move so quickly that you, you, it's not going to wait for you to respond, you know. And, and if you don't respond, well, then that is a response. So, um, whether you're talking about fundraising, PR, um, thought leadership, the need to, uh, respond in the moment and with a, a certain level of speed and maturity, I think has has risen dramatically. Now, it's interesting. Many people have pointed out the fact that for many within the millennial generation, they're leaving the institutional church as a whole, but they're still joining, supporting, and getting involved with nonprofits in general. Have you seen this trend with regards to millennials who are, quote, in a sense, maybe replacing church involvement with nonprofit involvement? And if you've seen this trend, why do you think it's happening? And what is your school doing to address this? Well, I think the the times have demanded tangible responses. Uh, Social media has allowed us to organize in new ways and to respond with uh, 
with more speed to gather quickly. You know, we we saw it overseas in um, you know places like uh, you know in, in the Middle East and in, in Egypt where Facebook allowed people to gather in a new way and, and to organize for pro social protest and social change. And I think we kind of admired that from afar. Well, now we're seeing that actually show up on our shores where, uh, you know, big issues, major issues, uh, you know, uh, issues of gun violence, issues of how we're going to deal with immigration, how do we treat the other. Um, these, are, these are major, uh, what should we say, referendum, you know, where as a culture we're trying to decide who, who we are and what do we value. And uh, young people can organize rapidly um I, I went to a uh a march that was held here after after the school shooting in in parkland florida and we're out here in seattle literally as far as you, away from florida as you can possibly be and yet local students organized a massive rally that marched right through you know downtown seattle and into uh, the Seattle Center to a big park, and they had speakers, they had performers. Brandy Carlisle sang. She, after she finished singing, she introduced Dave Matthews. And I mean, all this came together within like, you know, 20 days or something like that. So to move thousands of people into uh, action in such a short time with amongst leaders who are you know, 16, 17, 18 years old, I, I think we are not used to seeing that. Uh, so in that sense, right, I, I'm showing up with my family, with my teenager on that same day. And, and yes, we are being led by teenagers into, uh, into social action, into um, some consciousness raising and hopefully some, some systematic change as well. So... Um, I, I do see this this shift, and and to the degree that that faith based organizations uh, maybe um, you know are uncertain because they're sort of say, well, I don't want to get involved with politics. Well, I'm not sure for young people, you know, I don't know if they view it as politics or just basic kind of human rights kinds of issues, you know, health, safety, uh, caring for the other. I don't think they see that as necessarily political. I think they just see those as core values. And, um, uh, you know, so, so we all maybe are going to be forced to deal with those questions of uh, how we treat others and, and who has rights and who deserves to be safe and who deserves to be protected. Um, those, are, those, are, those are social issues that, that could, that I would hope, you know, that, that faith based organizations can uh, respond to. Certainly at the Seattle School, our students are, I don't know, they're, they're deeply committed to discussions of, of rooted in, you know, the, the Me Too moment and, and Black Lives Matter. They, um, they're concerned about classmates who are not treated uh, equally. So, um, I hope we're going to find that, uh, you know, the, the, the dignity of, of each other. Uh, you know, I, actually, I just wrote a book called Selfies that is, is rooted in the millennial generation, but it's, it's also saying, hey, we're created in the image of God, that the dignity in each of us that we see even in a selfie 
is something that we have to pay deep attention to. Yeah, okay, you beat me to the punch there. I was going to mention your new book, Selfies. Love that title, by the way. Now, it seems like the perfect book to talk about when it comes to this millennial generation. There is no doubt that smartphones and social media are ubiquitous. Now, what kind of response have you received from your book? And are you hoping to integrate this book and maybe books like it with your students currently? Yeah, well, the, the one reason I was drawn to Seattle is this uh, accelerated technological moment and sort of Seattle being the home to you know, to Microsoft, to Amazon, to uh, companies like uh, Expedia, Tableau, uh, of course, Starbucks. You know, it's it's, uh, it's it's a place where technology, I think, has made uh, a huge impact economically, and then that's been exported to others. Um, you know, with the selfie phenomenon, I decided to wade into it because there's so much contentious feeling around it. I think all of us you know, kind of uh, get mad about selfies. If you see somebody with a selfie stick, you almost want to break it in half, you know, even on on site. And yet for the next generation, what's going on? Like, why are they uh, taking these pictures? Uh, so I decided to pause, in a sense, myself and study it and, and think about it in the long history of self-portraiture and say, well, with, if Rembrandt or Van Gogh does a self-portrait, we say that's brilliant. But if it's a 14-year-old girl who posts it, we say, well, that's narcissistic. And, and maybe that re- reveals a little bit of our own misogyny, you know, that we have this this uh, kind of double standard. So the, the the smartphone being in people's hands, everyday people's hands, allows people to do their own self-imaging really for the first time and, and to publish and distribute their own image and to not uh, have some photographer decide what is beautiful, what is good, what is true. Uh, so I think there's a new empowerment that has come for the next generation as a result of this. And I think that's why they're so committed to equality and dignity of uh, for all, uh, because they've been looking at each other online and, and, and being trained to see, you know, uh, yeah, you're beautiful. I see that why you're posting and you're maybe wanting to know, does anybody see me? Does anybody care about me? Uh, am I noticed? And so it's a chance in the selfie culture to actually acknowledge the other and to uh, affirm their worth and and their dignity, which is powerful work for I think any uh, nonprofit organization is going to is going to say that yes, you have value and you are worthy of our attention and our time and our resources. That's really interesting. Okay, so what I'm hearing from you is that we need to hit the pause button perhaps before we simply react and label this next generation that perhaps our fears and concerns are more reactive than truly reflective and accurate of this millennial generation. Well, it's it's such a, um, yeah, it's a heightened time, right? It's a dramatic time and, and there's a lot more heat than light <laughs> at this moment. You know, uh-huh. the, the, the media right. can broadcast things so quickly and the, the counter response can happen so quickly uh, that we need more people to at least pause and say, oh, hold on, time out. Wait, that's a human being. That's a person. That's a person of worth, value, dignity. And, uh, and maybe they're dealing with trauma. Maybe they're dealing with abuse. We don't know what their trials and struggles have been. So let's pause just long enough to say, Thank you for this person. Uh, they are made in the image of God, and uh, I'm going to try to hold them with a certain level of care and respect. 
Very interesting. Okay, now having said that, uh, what are some of the emerging expressions of faith and communities of faith that perhaps are outside the so-called institutional church that, in your opinion, are really powerful expressions of faith being lived out in a community context? Well, that's a great question. We just finished something called the Inhabit Conference at the Seattle School, and uh, the Inhabit Conference brings people who are really community organizers and and people who serve the community, and it's 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 community place based. It's it's looking at uh, a neighborhood as a parish and encouraging leaders to just get out into the streets and literally walk the streets, see who the neighbors are, talk to people, find out what services are needed. And and as you're interacting with people, you you might change your focus and you might realize that, you know, the kinds of things they need are 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 far more practical uh, and attainable than you realized. And so you see in even in a title like inhabit, the whole idea is to to be in the neighborhood and to be as close to the people you're serving as possible and to not try to take on, you know, the entire city. It, it can be overwhelming in certain urban areas to try to say, how do I, how do I, how do, how do we address the homeless problem in Seattle? That's a massive problem. And it's in every neighborhood, you know, every pocket of Seattle is dealing with this. And, and so to try to solve it on a macro scale, you know, I mean, Bless those those politicians and leaders who are, are t- trying to do that. But for nonprofits, I think the idea of just trying to say, how do we deal with our immediate neighborhood? How do I deal with our immediate surroundings? What's my local parish as a church that I can I can walk? If I can walk this district, then that would be the people that I know I can serve and reach on any given day. All right, my guest again today has been Dr. Craig Detweiler. He's the president of the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology. He's also an author, speaker, and filmmaker. Craig, how can they find out more about you, your books, as well as the school? Well, you can find our our school at the seattleschool.edu, and you'll see, you know, master's degrees in in counseling, in psychology, in uh Master Divinity for aspiring ministers, and then also theology and culture for those who are perhaps interested in artistic expressions or economic expressions, uh, who want to serve people overseas, um, and, and to do some creative problem solving. So the seattleschool.edu, you'll, you'll find what we're up to. And, uh, my book, you can find, I think, uh, selfiesandgod.com. That's where you'll see. Uh, I'm probably the first, uh, you know, professor to ever talk about what's right about Snapchat, you know. <laughs> so, uh, so check it out. I think you'll enjoy it. Craig, thanks so much for calling in today. It's great having you on the show. Uh, thanks for taking the time and keep up the good work. Thanks so much, Rob. I wanted to let you know that we are on iTunes. If you are wondering how to find out where we are, check us out on iTunes by typing Nonprofit Leadership Podcast or Rob Harder, and this podcast should show up. We also encourage you, when you go on iTunes, let us know what you think. Give us a review. Give us a rating. We would love to hear what you think of this podcast, and your feedback will help us expand this podcast to get it out to as many people as we can. You can also go online to listen to this podcast, either nonprofitleadershippodcast.org or my website, robharder.com. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, keep making your world better.